hello and welcome back or welcome to the Waterski podcast. This is Matteo Ruzzeri, your host, and the goal of this podcast is always the same, promoting the sport of water skiing through the voices of people in and around the sport. This is episode 96, which is part two of my interview with Dave Wingerer. Part one was released a couple of days ago. I was trying to publish yesterday, but didn't get around it. So here's part two. What a part two. Uh, If you've been following the podcast, I normally like to extrapolate a little nugget from the episode and use that as the very first bit of audio, as the intro. But uh, as I was working through the editing of this one and, and listening to what Dave talked about and what we talked about, I couldn't really single out a um, bit. And I think it's because with episode, um, with part one in mind, I think you really get a sense of the person behind the microphone, the person behind some of the product you are using or you used in the past or you might decide to use in the future. Dave is a deep thinker who's truly engulfed and passionate about the job that he does and the and the skiing really Uh, I love how in the interview here he says that it's incidental that what he loves to do also happens to be his job right so if he wasn't working in the water ski industry he would be thinking about the water skiing in the same ways it just happens that he gets to do it um, every day as a job Uh, brilliant talk about manufacturing designing uh, what he I love how he boils the construction of a ski down to simple terms that everyone can understand. Uh, Yet, through this episode, you'll probably realize how much work and and months and trial and error R&D goes into the piece of carbon that you have your bindings on. So I'll stop here and uh, I will get into the episode very soon. I do have an announcement to make before we jump into it. I've been working on a seminar, uh, an online seminar, an online course, we can say, um, in sports psychology for water ski coaches. Uh, This is something that I would like to release um, and start hosting by the end of February. I say it's for water ski coaches because it's not necessarily targeted to athletes. That being said, you don't have to have coach as your formal occupation, as your formal job. If you're someone that uh, helps out at the lake, someone who cares about um, helping their bodies ski better, um, the course will be the psychological side of it, uh, both from uh, the effect that the coach can have on the athlete and the psychological aspects of coaching itself. I will be talking a little bit more about this in ensuing episodes. Uh, but if you're interested or curious about it, you can write me at Matteo, M-A-T-T-E-O, at thewaterskipodcast.com. That's it. That was the announcement for today. Let's jump into the second part of my interview with Dave. Uh, Dave, thank you once again for taking time to do this. As I said before, I... I've been wanting to do this for a while and I'm, I'm 
I wanted to do it right. And I think, I hope uh, we managed to do it. So there you have it. Part two with Dave. So that's your, your job, right? But, you know, in all our interactions and every, every time I talk to you, we talk about syndicate skis, about the next thing. Like, how are you able to, because, but again, to give some context, that's one part of HO. So how do you reconcile your passion for that whilst being stretched all over? Like, is it easy? Like the syndicate skis is kind of like playing time or, uh, you know, you see what I mean? Like from your own personal motivations, that's how I mean it. Yeah. So now, yeah, we, we manage all the categories in the HO brand. Um, you and I talk a lot about skiing, um, because obviously that's what you're interested in. That's why you work with HO. And so what I find is when I talk to you and I talk to Will, I talk water skis. So a lot of people in the water ski world just think that's all I do. But uh, honestly, we do all kinds of stuff. Like I had did a call with uh, one of my vendors in China last night at 1030 about electric hydrofoil. So we're working on some electric propulsion hydrofoil stuff now, or we're designing hydrofoils for the Hyperlite brand, or we're doing life vest for tubing, or we're designing new tubes for Costco, or we're doing gloves, um, uh, or we do a lot of like what we call drop stitch inflatable items like play pads and um, things you'd lounge on in the summer, or we were making recycled PVC pool floats and like a lot of stuff that sounds kind of rinky dink or whatever, you know, like not, not cool, but, um, we, HO has to do all those things, uh, to continue to grow and be successful in the water sports industry. Um, and those are good money makers and we treat them just like anything else. We really put our design hats on and we, tr we be good engineers and we build great product. Uh, obviously we're a little more passionate about water ski. Um, we water ski on the weekends and I don't do a lot of like, lounge floating on the weekends. You know what I mean? So, um, yeah, although I have been hydro, I've been riding the foils a little bit behind the boat, which is fun. But anyway, um, we treat those like any business person would, and we do very, we make great product, but yes, when I talk to you and I talk to Will and I talk to people, they all want to talk about water ski design. Cause that's what we're passionate about. And I do in all honesty, probably spend more time on water ski design than I probably should. If you looked at it from a strict business standpoint and also I know this is true. We spend more money on water skis and water ski design than we should. Um, if you were a good businessman, <laughs> I'm yeah. not a businessman. I, I'm an engineer and I'm a water skier and I happen to run a business, but I don't pride myself. I don't have an MBA and I don't necessarily pride myself on being a businessman. I often make decisions that are very counter what you would learn in business school. Uh, and that's because I'm a passionate water skier. So we probably spend more on water skiing than we should, but I've been getting away with it for a long time because I do make them money in other ways, you know? So anyway. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. What is it? I mean, obviously, I mean, part of it is completely understandable from the fact that you are a skier, you know, you, I mean, the weekend, if you get a chance, you're going to be in a slalom course at Hilltop trying to run buoys. Yep. So naturally your inclination is, you know, I, I'm interested in the ski stuff, but is it also like an engineering question, right? So I, in my dumb little way of understanding it, engineers solve problems and is the problem of 
slalom's key design more interesting than the others for you personally beyond the business side of things yeah i think so i think the the water ski design and the problem of it is very complicated it's not easily solvable it might not be solvable there's your your knowledge your understanding is always evolving and there's just almost endless combination unless ai gets involved in water ski design and can run the numbers uh i i'll have a job you know what i mean like uh because otherwise it's so complicated that we'll never really crack the code in terms of uh, the ultimate combination because a water ski has to do so many weird things like i often have like a naval architect approach me and be like I've been over the Navy all these years and you guys, here's how you do a ski. And I actually had even one Naval architect who designed a ski, made a mold and built me a ski out of the mold. It was pretty radical looking. And he's like, you got to ride it. It's the fastest ski in the world. And I did ride it and it was pretty fast, but it was unrideable. It wouldn't even stay in the water. So my point is you can optimize skis for straight line speed, but a water ski has to go straight has to go fast, has to slow down, has to turn, has to grip, has to release, has to do like very contrary things um, at different points in the course. And so it's a very interesting problem. And also I feel like our generation is kind of on the cutting edge of theory. It means uh, how you do a slalom course, theoretical, like your path through the course and also syncing that up with the equipment. I feel like golf maybe, and I'm not a golfer, so maybe I'm out of turn here, but there's kind of like a, a golf swing and the mechanics have kind of been worked out and there's nuance. You might want a different, you know, uh, stiffness of the shaft or this or that. Um, but there's like the book's been written and I feel like we might be writing the book just this time and place. You know what I mean? Like what you're doing and Marcus is doing on the theoretical of how you do the slalom course and then what I'm doing, syncing it up with the equipment. It's, it's cool timing. So it's, it, it just stays motivating, you know? So, yeah. 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 And, and I think technique or like, and I'm using technique now in a very general sense, like uh, the path in the course and the bodily movements that bring that path about, like yeah. they just give that definition of technique. Problem is like that's one of the variables and the variables are ever changing, right? So mm -hmm. the boats that are now being used weren't the boats that were being used when you started HO. Right? No, it's and had a huge impact on ski design. Ski design has evolved a lot because of cruise control yeah. and boats for sure. But I guess my question is, is it something that you have been keenly aware of as you continue to 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 work on design or is this something that you sort of like realized after fact right oh man like this ski works because of this and that i think two things i think one thing that i still kind of answer your question but one thing that had a big impact on me is lapointe obviously kind of told us a story about parish how parish is running like four at 41 and then he convinced Chris to ride a bigger ski. So he was riding a sixum. I don't remember the exact sizing on sixums, but he was riding a 67 and a half and he got Parrish on a 69. And that's when Parrish ran the, the one at 43 or, or excuse me, maybe it was one and a quarter at 43, his first world record at Hancock. And so Bob said, Hey, 
the future is bigger skis. And so after we got done building A1s, and a, Will and I and Bob have always been on this like quest for making bigger skis work. Um, and I do think that has proven to sync up real well with just the, the evolution of like cruise control and some of the stuff that maybe Nate Smith opened our eyes to more recently. Um, so no, we had a vision. We were, we were trying to make bigger skis work. And then also now to answer your question, when you look back, you notice that things did work and other things didn't work, um, because of, you know, because of cruise control. And, but I think the bigger ski thing is, is a pretty big deal. Um, we're still working on it. I would say just recently, have we really nailed it? Like maybe last weekend when Will skied so well, but you know, we're riding a lot bigger skis than we used to in that regard. And I do think that is the modern way, like a Charlie Ross, when you watch him ski, it's like, dude, he's doing exceptional things with that big ion at his weight. Yeah. And then the, you know, I think, so I think, yeah, do we, we had a vision of the future and we went after it and now maybe it's paying dividends, you yeah. know, uh, but was it calculated all the way? No. I mean, looking back, we did a lot of stuff, you know, we shouldn't have as well, a lot of trial and error. So, yeah. Yeah. Cause I mean, also yeah. some of those, like a lot of those variables are not even within your control, right? Like when we shifted to bigger, wider boats that now all of a sudden it's much easier to keep the pylon straight and there's no give, that's a big change yeah. in the sport, you know, like, uh, totally sure. Path. Yeah. Those like, kind of came at us and then we had to adapt. Uh, but, but before that we did have a vision as well. Yeah. Um, yeah. No, it's, uh, I mean, I always find it interesting and I've asked the different guests that occupy different roles in the sport, how they deal with the messiness of water skiing. And what I mean by that is how many things are in place, how many variables, right. That affect a, a performance, you know, or, uh, the ability to run the slalom course. Um, mm -hmm. and, and I was very curious to hear like from a product design standpoint, how you deal with, with the others, right? Like, um, I guess you, but, but then again, you're a skier. So you, you experience them in, uh, whenever you get a chance, right? Like, you know, that yeah. now boats are like this and yeah, you, uh, you live it. I mean, every, we're, uh, you know, I don't ski like at a super high level professionally, but I ski at a quite high level. And so you got your, you live it, you got your finger on the pulse, what's going on. You see up and coming skiers doing unique, like I brought the Charlie Ross thing, like keep your eye on him. Like he's doing something very unique. Like. I don't have to work at that. I don't have to set a reminder. Oh, Dave, look at Charlie Ra. I, I, I live it, you know? Uh, so, um, it's not even work for me. It's just living at this point. Um, so yeah, you got your finger on the pulse and you have a gut feeling and scratch. You want to scratch the itch. You want to see where it goes. And so not to go back to Lockheed Martin, but I remember when I worked at Lockheed Martin, there were a couple old, engineers there who were really great rocket scientists and they would talk about rocket engines at lunch and on the weekends they would build their own rockets. I mean, they were into rockets like you and I were into skiing. And I think at a young age, it dawned on me, it's like, you don't really choose your profession. Like it chooses you. Like these guys were so into it. And if you want to be truly great at something, you have to scratch that itch. Whether it makes sense or not, or it's a good business decision or not, you got to go after it. 
And that's been real successful for me. And it's funny because a lot of those really great rocket engine or rocket scientists, they weren't necessarily running the division at Lockheed Martin. They were just, they were just doing the work. Yeah. So that's what I'm doing. Like I'm doing the work, like I'm skiing and I'm building skis. I'm doing CAD and could I be moved up even higher in my company? Maybe, but I'm, I'm just doing what I enjoy. What kind of chooses me? I'd be doing this even if I wasn't at HO, I think I'd probably be messing around with skis and maybe would have made some molds and, you know, I'd be curious. So, yeah. 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 Now, before we, I just have one last question. I promise I'll limit it now before we talk about like the nuts and bolts of, of of designing a ski and and the components, kind of like an educational type of thing. Sure. You mentioned life and work and, and maybe this question comes more from someone who also has work like water skiing is both both work and passion and 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 life and the decisions that come with it i i'm curious to hear how you 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 manage it you know like sometimes to me like it, it can be a little blurry what it is life and what it is work you know which a lot of people could take it as a good sign like you're you're doing something that you love and and it chooses you but there are also like there's like a downside to that as well so I feel, I wonder if you could speak cause you've been doing this for yeah. 15 years now, like long time. It's totally blurry. I would say, um, some people think all you do is work. You work all the time, every day of your life. A lot of people think all you do is play all you, you, you're just playing all the time. You're just going water skiing with your friends, right? You know, like, so it's funny. The perspective, the reality is probably somewhere in between. I mean, yeah, I am fortunate. I do go water skiing with my friends. You know, it just happens my friends are world champions and we're making skis together. Um, but yeah, I'm always working as well. And so there is no real work-life balance. Um, it pro- I don't know. I mean, if you, I don't know, it's the healthiest lifestyle in the world, but uh, yeah, it's what we do. It's become normal now. Um, and I do think I still have the winters off, you know, so I'm not skiing 12 months out of the year, water skiing that is. And so sometimes that's a nice seasonal break to the body, but I'm still working on water ski design every day. Um, talking to Will and we never take a day off of like pushing the ball forward on a water ski project, whether it's a ski or a boot or something. So, but I think I've learned, I mean, I, I don't get too emotionally involved anymore. I can talk skiing and talk bevel size and chit chat with Parrish or Bob. Um, and it doesn't affect me negatively. Like it's affecting my life poorly because I'm talking water skiing, you know, yeah. um, it's just what I know, you know, probably like you talking what you do. Yeah. You know, I mean, yeah, you you probably work with a high level athlete, but it doesn't overtake your life just because you happen to be a high level athlete, you know? Yeah. yeah. So I, I see, I see yeah. your point. And, and I'm yeah. more on a, on, a, on a funny note, are you able to ski and water ski in the weekend without thinking about work? You see what I mean? Like, no, no. Like if you go and you have a, a good set, I don't know. Are you going to think, oh man, this time is the ski that is good. Or you just enjoy like a ski with friends on a Saturday. No, I think maybe I think about work, but I, but I think I probably was thinking about, oh, the ski felt good. or this. I'll answer your question this way. When I go snow skiing on the weekend with friends, I'm thinking about the snow ski design. So in a way, I already, that's me, right? 
yeah. I'm like, oh, the side cut's grabbing too much in the snow or it's not distracting me from the experience. That's just when you snow ski as many days as I have, your feel is so high. You just, that is the experience, the sun, the wind, the powder, but also how the skis are interacting with the snow medium. Like that's just who I am. So when I water ski, yeah, I'm thinking like that. And yeah, that happens to be work, right? Right. So it happens to be work. I like it. I like it. That's, that's a, that explains it very well. Yeah. That explains it very well. Now talking about explanations, um, as I told you off record, like off record, like the listenership of the water ski podcast is very, is very different, right? So Mm -hmm. there's the you and I's who have been in the sport for a lot of years and understand the technical language, um, understand a lot about what is involved in the sport. Uh, and there are some, you know, people who just enjoy water skiing on, you know, on a recreational sure. level. Uh, sure. And I was wondering if we could do our best job to explain um, what are the, like, how you build the ski. Sure. And what are, like, some of the things that you look for or, or are a part of, like, the design of a, of a slalom ski. Sure. I can do that. I mean, I can go in simple terms and you just tell me what you think if it makes sense. But, um, yeah, I mean, how water skis are made now are, uh, they used to be, let's start off how they used to be made. You used to have a ski made out of wood or fiberglass and a guy like Bob LaPointe would modify it. He would sand on the bevel and he'd tweak things. And then you'd make a soft tool mold, meaning you take that physical ski and you make an imprint of it into a resin and that would become your new ski. So every ski in a way, started as a previous ski with some modifications. Does that make sense? Like you had your ski that you modified and you made an imprint of it. Like you made a mold on that actual part and that became your new ski. And nowadays they're a little different. So now with CAD software, we don't modify by hand as much. We design in CAD, which means we're designing in like a three dimensional space. So in essence, we're like, just designing a ski out of our mind. We're not necessarily starting with the previous ski. In order to design a ski out of your mind, you got to know all the variables. You have to know all the numbers. Um, and so I had to come up with a real simple way of doing that. So the, I think about water skis made up of three parts. You have the width of the ski. So if you looked at, if you laid the ski on the floor or stood on, on the dock, you look down, there's a width profile. You got three inches from the tail, six inches in the tail, 19 inches from the tail. It's got a width. You've got a rocker. So if you looked at it from the side, you've got that curvature, like the banana of the ski, as Mapple used to say. Yeah. And then the one, the third one is a little trickier. We call it the cross section. So if you cut the ski in half, left to right, and you looked at a section or a slice of it, uh, you'd have a thickness and a bevel and a concave. And so really what you do when you do a ski design is you kind of pick numbers for all those. You know, you pick your widths, you pick your rockers, you pick your variable your, your your quantities on that section and then you put them together so you make a rocker line mm-hmm. and you make a width and you kind of hang these sections on the rocker line almost like you'd hang a coat hanger on a coat rack you know what i mean when i say that yeah. like yeah. the coat hanger is your cross section the coat rack is actually curved like your rocker line and the width mm-hmm. of the coat hanger is your width of the ski and in a simple way, that's how we do it in CAD. And so every yeah. ski is just a new combination of those variables. And I think 
the difference between HO and maybe the other brands, and this is hopefully I'm not out of line saying this, is sometimes I feel like other brands are just trying to get the coat hangers on the rocker and make it good and they know certain things work. But HO, we're often exa- intentionally exaggerating one of the variables, meaning in order to make a breakthrough ski and not just make a good ski, you're going to have to change a variable. You're going to have to take a risk. And you take risks, sometimes you fail, and eventually you learn and you get it right and you have a breakthrough. And I think a lot of people are just trying to get the ski to fit together. You know what I mean? And we're intentionally pushing it in certain areas to try and make breakthrough skis. And so I don't mean that in a negative way because uh, it takes a lot more time and money and energy just to, um, it's hard, it's, I'd say nowadays it's pretty easy to make a good ski, but it's really, really hard to make a great one. If you're gonna take, make a great ski, you gotta take some risk. So you're gonna have to take one of those variables, say it's the rocker, and you're gonna have to really experiment, like can we push the rocker? Where can we push it? Meaning, can we add more? Should it go under the back foot? Should it go in the nose? Everyone can theorize how it should be, but until you build a mold, you test it, and you take it out in practice, and take it to a tournament, do you figure out if does it really work? And after you do that for 15 years, you start to understand, well, it doesn't work here, but it might work here. The future might be in this section on the bevel. And you start to really turn the dials on all those variables. And you start mm-hmm. to piece things together, figure out what your market likes, figure out what your athletes like, and maybe start to see the future. It's like, you know, like you, you can see all the numbers and now you're like, oh, maybe this is where you want to go with the numbers, you know? So anyway, that's yeah. that's kind of got off topic there. But long story short, Skis nowadays, at least at HO, are designed mostly in theory. We don't, I know it's hard for people to understand, like a John Horton, like they're not a continuation of the previous ski. They're not an Omega with a different bevel. They're literally from the ground up new at HO. Now, meaning we don't throw it all out the window and give up on all the data we once used. Like we often will be like, well, we know, uh, a 450 bevel size works, so we're going to use it on the ski. But we're also, it's not just the last ski with a modification. We're not like opening the CAD file on the Syndicate Pro and changing one variable. Like, it's an all new CAD file every time, you know? Mm-hmm. I think that's different. I don't think mm-hmm. other brands are doing that. So that's the only reason I bring that up. And the reason I bring that up is because that framework we built, literally, the, the coat hangers hanging on the coat rack gives us the flexibility to do whatever we want. We're not restricted to just iterating off the previous design. So it's like the framework gave us the freedom to really create anything we want and to push variables. I think that's unique. So I, I think it's that's why I bring it up because I think if, if I was buying snow skis and a snow ski designer told me that story, I'd be like, yes, those are the snow skis I want to buy because... Maybe they don't always get it right, but they're at least giving it a go. You know what I mean? Yeah. And they probably will get it right if they make good decisions over the long term. So that's the reason I bring that up. So. Yeah. 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 And I think um, it's, I mean, on a personal level, that's why I've loved my last 10 years. You know, like when yeah. I get a box, I I just cannot wait to feel what you guys came up with, let's say. Right mm-hmm. um, now, of course, as a skier, I, I might be attached to a certain skis or certain ways in which I feel 
in certain ways in which I believe I should feel. Mm-hmm. And then I try the ski and, and I get proven wrong or, or proven right. Depends, Correct. Right? Um, but, but certainly I, I'm that type of skier. You know? yeah. um, now, you start a new file, but as you said, you, which you've said elsewhere that that's been one of the big changes you brought to HO is being like collecting data from all the skis you've, been since, you've built since you've been there. Mm-hmm. How do you... Like you start a new file, you're in this 3D space with nothing in it. Like, where do ideas start to come from? Is it like before you even create the file with what you've learned from the previous year's model or out of what you know about the other models? Like, where do, where do you start, you know? Well, I think it starts at the lake. I mean, I think ultimately we're skiing all the time. I'm talking to you. I'm talking to Will and we're starting to generate theories and they'll be like, yeah, you know, I think maybe we need to go bigger on the bevel under the back foot, or maybe we need to concentrate some rocker behind your rear heel. And so often we, we try and prototype that. Like we'll try and make it sometimes out of the bevel. If you make a bevel bigger, you can make that pretty easy. You can sand on it. If you want to make the bevel smaller, good luck. Not much you can do rocker. You can kind of heat a ski and bend it. It'll stay for a while. Eventually it'll go away. So that's something you got to cut a mold. So will these ideas just kind of bubble up from skiing and talking with skiers. You start to see trends and then, yeah, what I have to do is at a certain point we're like, we got to do the CAD and, and, and typically when you do CAD, we start with the rocker line. We start with the clothes hanger, right? That you, you yeah. hang the hangers on the, the rod actually. So, um, and uh, I just have a feel for it now. Like I know the numbers, you know, like I'm like, oh, we have certain radiuses that work in certain areas. And so like if we used, uh, I'm not going to use the real numbers here for other companies listening, but let's say you got a 600 inch radius under your back foot and Will's like, Hey, I want to exploit that area. I want to try more. We might go to a 400 inch radius under the back foot. And like I work in that medium. So like it sounds nerdy, but I just know all the numbers at this point. Like I remember them. Like you remember your cell phone number, you know, for the most part. Yeah, yeah. So I'll be like, Hey, I just have a feel for it. I'm like, Hey, let's, t- let's try increase the rocker in this area. 10% or 20%. I like to think of percentages as well, personally. So then we try that, we cut a mold and we test it and often it doesn't work. Um, and we learn, Oh, well, maybe we didn't want that. Or maybe we did want that, but we didn't get in the right spot. So we, you know, we do thorough, we're very scientific. We use scientific method. We try and do proper testing, but eventually we probably cut another mold and we try it in a different area. And then you do that and you over a hundred molds later, you have a pretty good framework for what works. And you start to learn limits, bookends. We say like, well, we don't want a one seven, five tail rocker. And we, that's too much. We kind of learn that. And we don't want a one 300 tail rocker. That's too low. So you start to kind of rough it in and it's like, okay, we want a one five, two tail rocker, but how do we get there? How do you get from the flat spot on your front foot to one and a half inches from the, from the table to the bottom of the ski? Do you get there in a spline? Do you get there in a combination of three radii? Do you want to go from smooth to more kick as you get to the tail? Or do you want to kick and then be flatter? And then you, you can see the iterations just start rolling, you know, and yeah, you, you work through it, you start hashing through it. Um, and really a lot of it's cutting molds, skiing on the skis, recutting molds, skiing on the skis, 
and I should say that's the strength of HO is we have in-house mill, CNC mill. We have an in-house machinist and we can cut molds and we have the money because we're a big company and we sell a lot of tubes and life vests that we can fund buying aluminum, fund mold cutting, and we can get a chance to cut hundred molds, you know, yeah. well, on the new ski that works when well, we cut four molds before we settled on the mass production size. And that's just in the 67. So we cut a lot of tools wow. and any, any of them probably could have gone to market. And actually some of them, even the first one was probably more of a change than most of the manufacturers offer in a new product. But we keep scratching the itch until we get it to where we want it, you know, and it paid off. Like I think you saw will perform super well on the weekend running to a 43. So that made me feel good that we spent the money, spent the time and effort to get it there, you know? Um, so yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. 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 No, it's, it's a, it's a good process, but I, again, when I interview, I, I always want to hear, you know, your experience. Obviously you said it's a good it's a good feeling where my top athlete who has been working with, with me to try to get this going, like performs very well. Right. Um, I guess, I don't know, like how much is your feel on the weekends when you get to ski affecting your decisions in terms of design? Quite a bit. Um, when I first started, I was working with Will and Bob and Parrish and Wade and all these guys. And I would often ignore my feelings a little because I was not as good as them. I was, even though I was a great skier, I was a national champion as an amateur. I was not a five-time world champion like Bob. So I felt like my opinion maybe wasn't as important or valid as some of them. But as I've aged in my role, I've realized that even though I can't run as many buoys as them, my opinion actually is very valid. And I've often has trusted my gut more and gone with it. Um, good and bad, you know, I'm not always right, but I do have quite a bit of experience in riding skis now. And I don't think you have to be the best skier in the world to be the best ski designer in the world. Um, I do think the, the fallacy that some ski designers get or is that we know what you need to run 41. I don't think that's true. I think Will knows what he needs to run 41 and I don't have a clue because if I did, I'd run 41. <laughs> so I do believe that, right. but I don't believe, I do think that, uh, I do trust my gut more. Uh, I don't pretend to know what it takes to run 41, but I do I'm heavily influenced by my feeling. And I often think that some of the feelings I have are good gateways to making better products. Yeah, we had a little uh, glitch with the internet, but you were saying that nowadays you're trusting your gut more than... Yeah, so on the weekends, the feelings I have are often going to be incorporated in the next ski. I mean, to be honest, like if I'm riding a works too, and I'm like, yeah, it feels really good, but I think maybe the, the front's biting too much and the finish of the offside, then more likely when it comes time to do the next mold cut of the works too, whether it's mass production or prototyping, I'll probably try to address that, you know, especially if Benny's like, yeah, I'm feeling that too. And often, even though Will and Benny are much better skiers than me, we have a real similar feel. Like you, there are themes. It's rare that, I'm feeling something and Will's like, yeah, I've never felt that at all. 
you know what I mean? Like usually Mateo yourself or me or Benny or Will, like we're, we might not agree on ski design always, but we'll, when we ride them, we usually have a similar feel, you know, and we, we see areas to improve yep. them. So, yeah. 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 I would say so too over the years. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Now, now I'm, I'm curious because you, we started this conversation by you mentioning how there is creativity in engineering. Mm-hmm. And I'll tell you my, my family experience, my sister that, you know, she's a very creative person mm-hmm. works in, you know, marketing, uh, which is a very creative endeavor and she's the creative type. And what I mean by that specifically is she can produce like great work, but one, she'll never be happy with it <laughs> ever. Like, you know, yeah. and two, they're good at putting they're good at putting the work out by a timeline, but if it were for them, there would be no timeline. Right. Mm-hmm. So that's sort of like arts, creativity, not following the, the line of, of, you know, time. Um, do you, do you mean some of that when it comes to design and engineering? Like, is that a component when you think of creativity or what do you mean by creativity in general in engineering and design? Well, I think those are really good points. I mean, I'm a bit like that. Like, you know, I'm kind of notorious on the syndicate skis for not getting them done on time. You know, it would make more business sense just to stop after two mold cuts, get it done early, but we usually cut it four times, you know, so I suffer from that a little bit. Um, No, but what I meant creativity wise is, you know, engineers are problem solvers and I think it takes a lot of creativity to come up with really elegant solutions. Like you can make decisions based on numbers and you should, you should think about numbers, but creativity goes a long way to think about it from out of the box or a different angle. And, um, I don't know. I, if I'd have one strength, I say that's mine. Like I, I don't always have the best idea in the room, but I usually have some decent ideas on how to tackle things. I can kind of boil it down to like Elon would say, you know, first principles and build it back up and kind of maybe come at it with a unique way. I think Elon said it best. He's like, most people reason by analogy. This is the way it's been done. And this is iterative of that, or this is how it is. So here's a solution, but a good engineer, in my opinion, uh, reasons by first principles, which for first principles just means physics, really like boil it down to the elemental yeah build it up and when you build it up you often have something that looks radically different than the normal than the analogy i never thought of it like that like until he explained it but i think maybe that's what i learned to do a little bit and so mm-hmm. we try to apply that theory once you get the hang of designing like i learned to be a designer when it came to skis you can start to apply it to very different products or marketing or sales or really life, you can start to apply that methodology. And so now like to go all the way back to a question you asked earlier, like I enjoy designing now. I learned to be a designer through water skis, but now I don't mind designing hydrofoils. I get to apply that skill I learned to a new medium and enjoy it. Or I don't mind uh, designing a marketing campaign or a, a sales strategy or business plan. You know, same idea. So I think, yeah, I think creativity is a big part of it. Um, If you want to be a good engineer. Can you give me an example that you can maybe share 
um, of when creativity made the difference in recent, like some recent decisions you had, whether it be ski design, you know, tubes, marketing, something where you kind of went away from the numbers and it has been done like this and sort of like, this is the problem. Let's try this, this I mean, strange I can, yeah. or unusual solution. That's a tough one. Yeah. I can't think of a really good one off the top of my head. I'm sure as we're chatting, one will pop in. I mean, I, the only one I can think of, it, it's not like a sexy one, <laughs> would be, um, yeah. you know, there's a lot of these like pool floats that are out there. You know, like when you go to your friend's house on the weekend, they got like a pool float in the in the water. You know, it looks like a swan or, or whatever. You know, they're very trendy now. Yeah. And actually, my reps were like, dude, we, we need to make these pool floats. And I'm like, I don't really want to make pool floats. Like, it seems silly to me. Plus... I went to see you Boulder. I'm a bit of a hippie, like I'm a bit of an environmentalist. So I really didn't want to make garbage, like lake garbage that you just use and throw away. And I've read all the Patagonia books, Yvonne Chouinard. And so that's a challenge for me, sustainable product design. Anyway, I was like, well, the only way in hell I'm going to make these pool floats for you guys is if we make them out of garbage, meaning we make them out of recycled material. I'm not going to just make them out of new material. So I contacted this vendor and I said, Hey, I want to make some of these pool floats, but I don't want to make it out of the virgin. They call it PVC material. I want to make it out of the scraps. So like the stuff you throw away and they say, Oh no, uh, you can't do that. I said, well, why? And they said, well, it's not as strong. I said, okay, well, so I thought about it some more and I was like, this isn't real creative now. So I said, I went back to him. I said, well, why don't we just make the gauge thicker? So like the material's not as strong. Why don't we just use a little thicker material? Meaning the same material, just a little bit more of it. And they go, oh yeah, we never really thought of that. I was like, oh. so I said, make me some samples. They said, oh, it will cost more. I said, I don't care. Just make it for me. And so they made some, they're, they're thicker. And they came in and they were like really nice and they were actually more durable than the normal pool floats. And, and we got lucky because it had like a nicer hand to it, like a little nicer feel mm -hmm. and long story short, we ended up producing these products and they're, I think the world's first, uh, fully made from fully recycled material. So they're fully recycled. They're made from scrap material pool floats. We did them in some cool colors. You know, we did like a tiger and we did a unicorn and we did all that. And we ended up, we have a good relationship with Costco and they end up selling a couple of them at Costco. So if you go to Costco now and you buy these pool floats made of garbage, really made of the scrap material. And so in the end, it probably has a pretty big impact. And now I think other brands are doing it and whatever. So, but it, we did something never been done. It wasn't a big deal, but I think that one spark of creativity, which really wasn't creative. It's just like, Hey, just try a thicker material. One, the, the vision is to try and do it up against the obstacles, trying to make it more responsible. Then two, coming up with a simple solution to do it and no one had done it. I mean, that's, that's the first thing that came to my head, although it's not a very sexy example, but no, but that's kind of proud of that one. Yeah, yeah. that's a good, I mean, I, I, I would be yeah. proud of that idea too, to be honest. Yeah. Um, yeah. Did you test the, the, the pool floats? Like did you, when you receive it, did you actually go to a pool and oh, yeah. jump on it? You know, I'm such a dork, like. You know, obviously we test all the water skis and, but I test everything like water skis. 
like I test the poof. I mean, I, I put time, I, I literally, I don't outsource that. I don't give it to the guy on my team and go try it. Let me know how it goes. Like I go to the lake, I get in the water, I swim on the pool floats, I climb on the ladder. I, you know, I, I want to know, I want to use it. So I understand if it works, if it doesn't work. And then it helps me sleep at night. I go, well, yeah, I thought it was good. I went for it. Or it wasn't like, oh shit, I never really tested it. So I don't know if it's any good. You know, like I treat it like something I would ride or buy and something I'd be proud of, you know? Yep. So yeah, I try them all. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's I cool. ride the tubes even. I mean, I go out and my buddies and I, I sit with him and his daughter and we ride the tube around, you know, like, oh, here I'm a brand manager and I'm riding the tube. But yep. then I know, I'm like, oh, that's a great tube, you know? So yeah. anyway. <laughs> yeah, no, 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 so. but I, that's the type of stuff we, I don't think I've heard, you know, about your, that side of, of, of your job, you know? Yeah, exactly. Um, but jumping back on skis a little bit, I think we didn't talk sure. too much about manufacturing, which you said sure. in the onset has been very interesting. Uh, again, some untrained uh, listeners might not know what skis are made of and how they're made. Uh, so yeah, little, I can go through that. Yeah. A ski is made of three ingredients, sometimes four, if you want to talk graphics, but three ingredients. So you have a core material, which on water skis is foam. It used to be called polyurethane foam or it used to be polyurethane foam, I should say. And that's like the foam you find in a surfboard. And nowadays, on the high end, we use a foam called PVC foam or PMI, which is like a rigid foam, lighter, stiffer. And then you, that, if you look at that foam, it looks like a water ski. It's like, literally, it looks like a, a works one or works two, but it's just a little bit thinner and narrower. And so it's like a, it's almost like a Russian doll, like inside the, the Russian doll, there's another one. That's the foam core. And then you take that foam core and you wrap uh, laminate around it and that's either fiberglass or carbon fiber or both. And then the way you hold that foam core and that laminate or that carbon fiber, let's say on a high end ski together is with resin mm -hmm. and resin is, it's called a, ours is epoxy. It's two parts. And when you mix it together and you apply heat and temperature, it becomes a composite material it becomes hard. It's bonded chemically. And that's what gives you that finished ski. So really easy foam core, carbon fiber on a high end and resin. And that's how you make a water ski. Now the fourth component is graphics. You don't really need graphics to make a water ski, but you know, that's a big part of how things look. So often they have a plastic top sheet and, uh, more recently they've had a plastic bottom sheet. That's what speed skin is for us. I think radar has a enduro base and you see more and more of that. Um, our new work skis, actually, we eliminated the plastic top and bottom. We kind of went back to the old school way of just three ingredients. But that's that's really what you need. You need foam, carbon, and resin. And then the way that you um, make it look like a ski, because you could put all three of those together and it would just become a rigid blob, right? <laughs> it wouldn't have any form. <laughs> right. So we use a method called compression molding. And compression molding is just that you you have a mold, which looks like, the negative of the ski or the positive ski, meaning like the ski goes inside of it and it closes mm -hmm. and through heat and pressure, it forms into that works one shape or that works two shape. And, um, 
comes out of the mold. You have to cut all the extra material off and you have to do a little bit of finishing here and there. And that's how it takes its shape. So three ingredients go in and it's molded into its final ski shape. And then there's a little bit of finishing. So, yeah. And the, the same goes, cause you've been talking about the high end skis, but like if I take, I don't know, an Omni or a free ride ski, same, pre- same method, same method. They're all compression molded. It doesn't, it's not take you get to combo skis, the pairs, those aren't compression molded, but every other ski, every slalom ski you've ever ridden is compression molded. Um, just different materials that go in it, meaning they all probably use the same resin, honestly. Uh, they'll definitely use different foam cores. So polyurethane's used on the lower end and the, the more rigid foams are used on the high end. And then high end skis use at least HOs, hundred percent carbon fiber or a low end ski, like a, they'll use fiberglass. So based on that, you can kind of build different costs of skis and different costs of skis are different retail price points. But the method, the method of making them is the same. Yeah. The compression molding process. Where does the manufacturing aspect that you've been recently find finding interesting coming to play with, with ski production? Yeah. So, um, well, even before production, um, getting ready to produce, like I said, we have our own CNC mills. So we cut our own tooling. We do our own CAD in house. We cut our own molds in house. Uh, we do our, our compression molding in house. The foam core is machined. Like I said, it looks like the shape of a finished ski, although it's quite smaller. We don't outsource that. We have our own machine and we cut those in house. Um, so that's really reduced a lot of costs for us, like a little bit more vertically integrated, meaning we do all that in house. You had to have the skill set to do it. You have to have the financial backing to invest in all those because CNC mills are like three, 400,000 bucks. And those CNC routers, which make your core are quite expensive. So smaller, smaller niche brands can't afford them. We're fortunate we can. Um, once the ski comes out of the mold, there's usually about 20 or 25 minutes of hand labor that's required to get it finished. We actually now are automating finishing, meaning we put it back on our router and, um, the flashings cut off the fin slots cut. Eventually we hope to have the inserts opened. So we're really, I mean, you hear me talk about Elon Musk and these guys, like we're kind of like ripping off what they're doing. We're essentially we're automating finishing mm-hmm. and that helps bring labor costs down or costs down because you're re- reducing some labor and that helps you build product in America. So actually at HL, we're starting to bring some skis back to America because we're able to automate more of the process. Also, it eliminates some human error because in finishing there is human error. When you file skis, if the filer's having a bad day, he can ruin a ski where, uh, automated finishing. I mean, you can ruin a ski in automated finishing too, but, um, it's much less likely when it's set up and running. So, um, just modern efficiencies in manufacturing, using automation, investing in that, trying to get efficiencies up and bringing product back to America is really intriguing to me because in the last two years with COVID and all that, we've really seen huge delays in shipping and production from overseas. We've become very dependent on, you know, Asia supply chains and it doesn't need to be that way. We can, we can find a better way, you know? So HO we're doing it and that's exciting to me. Um, for many reasons, you know, one, we get to do it in Seattle where we oversee everything and we're kind of masters of the trade. And so, uh, we're just trying to build better quality parts. And I, I enjoy that part of it, trying to make like a really beautiful design, but also manufacture that beautiful design 
time and time again, very effectively, efficiently, consistently. Yeah. Um, yeah. No, that's, I mean, that, that, that I didn't know that we were getting some design, like some production back. Mm -hmm. Well, it's new. I mean, it's in the works right now. I mean, it's not as of this podcast airing, it's, it's going to happen. I'm going to make it happen. Um, but it isn't happening yet, you know? Mm -hmm. So, and that, that's a lesson you, you would say from the, from the pandemic we, we had, or also like a bit of, you know, how can I say, as you said, kind of more oversight over, over the product itself. I think it's a gut feeling you had originally, like you kind of said, like I've been to China 25 times. I spent time overseas and you're like, man, we're getting left behind. Like we got to start making stuff here again, but it didn't really make business sense. Right. It was hard to convince the owners and the accountants that you're like, want to bring stuff back because it was the right thing to do. But during pandemic, it became made more financial sense. Like, wow, we can't get product quickly enough for whatever reason, material shortages, shipping container issues, whatever. So it really started to hit the bottom line as they say. Yeah. And so you, you had a better case with the accountants and ownerships like, Hey, we should really be doing this here. Or from a QC or quality standpoint, if you haven't been in a factory in three years, it's inevitable that quality control is going to lax a little. And when you can't travel to mainland China. We don't make skis in China anyway, but if we did, you wouldn't be in that facility to oversee quality control. So if you just have to go to Seattle to do it, you can oversee it. So the, the, uh, argument for us manufacturing is making more sense than ever. And that's kind of what I do. I have the gut feeling or a vision of where it's going. And often I have to wait for the timing on the argument to make business sense to get us there. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like they don't just let me do whatever the hell I want. I got to cost justify it and give them an ROI. Even though I already knew we wanted to do this, I had to wait for the moment and now we're doing it. You know? So that's, that's an interesting balance, right? Like, and I bet it's one of the struggles you have often of like, I want to do this. This makes sense, but it's not the right time. Uh, whether, you know, mm-hmm. from a business perspective, marketing, the, the public yeah. is not ready for this. It's too much, you know, like whatever it may be. Yeah. Yeah. Like I think hard shell boots are a great example of that. Like I really would like to do a from the ground up hard shell boot. Yeah. I did it once with EXO and it wasn't very successful. And that's because of the decisions I made, honestly. And, and then market changed. Everyone went to tow loops and things like that. But I would love to do that again, but to be honest, it doesn't make a ton of business sense right now because we have a great hard shell. Depending on who you ask, it may be one of the best, um, and it's filling the need, you know, but I still have this desire to really do one from the ground up. Um, and I, I think I probably will at some point, the, the window, the opportunity will allow us financially to have the money to do it. The market will demand it. People will be like, I'm sick of skiing in the rollerblade shell. You know, like it'll, yep. it'll come together. Um, I'll be ready, you know, <laughs> when it, when the market's ready. <laughs> good, good, good. So, yeah. Um, yeah. Just whilst we are on bindings, like what do you make of the return of like the rubber bindings as a, as a thing in water skiing? I'm stoked. I've never, I don't know if I should say this, but I will. I've never been a big fan of the, um, textile lace-up boots and you know what i mean by that like that 
maybe when radar started, they introduced this kind of like wakeboard style boot yep. for water skiing. And I get it. Um, they're easy to try on at the pro shop. They're really comfortable and they're probably great for recreational skiing, but I have never been a big fan of those for what we do tournament skiing. And, um, I'm really happy to see that the rubber boot is kind of taking back over some of that market. I'm even happy to see the rubber boot take over some of the hard shell market. I do think a rubber boot skis extremely well. There's nothing like the feel of rubber on your foot. You know, it feels really good. You're totally connected. My theory on a rubber boot is the cuff is like omnidirectional. There's no like physical cuff, but I mean the upper part of the boot, which on a hard shell we would call a cuff. You know, it's riveted. It's got hinges. It moves forward and backward, but it doesn't move left and right. And it doesn't move at all those other angles. Mm -hmm. But when you get a good rubber boot, it goes forward, back, left, right, and all the angles in between. So in a way, it's like an omnidirectional cuff. When if you think about it from an engineering standpoint, the way we move on a ski, that makes a ton of sense. Like, why would you be restricted just forward and backward and have no left to right movement? That's why I think you see people cut their boots down a lot, mm -hmm. which I also don't agree with. I think if a boot's designed correctly, you don't need to cut it down. Anytime you're cutting your hard shell down, and Adam Caldwell might argue with me, I think there's some issue with the hard shell. And I'm not saying his hard shell, I'm saying all rollerblade shells in general. Yeah. So no offense, you know, where I think the rubber boot kind of addresses that differently. Um, I will say this, and we do make a ton of rubber boots, and anyone who's used a hard shell that releases, I do think maybe the hard shell is better at releasability consistency, um, personally. But yeah, I think a, a rubber boot skis exceptionally well. And so I think that's a great trend, and I think it's a better trend than the, the lace-up boots, personally. I enjoy seeing rubber boots. And actually, I redesigned the animal boots a year or two ago to go back to all rubber. Yep. I got some flack for it. Some people like the laces and whatnot. But I think in the end people will realize that uh, an all rubber boot um, is, is a great alternative to a hard shell and perhaps maybe skis better in a way, you know, uh, because of that omnidirectional cuff. So. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's a, it's a good point. It's a good explanation as like why that trend might be back, you know? Um, mm -hmm. But I look forward to the day where market people brand whatever will give you the room to experiment again with the hard shell because it seems like something you really want to do i want to do it yeah i think it would help a lot i mean we've pushed ski design pretty far but we haven't pushed boot design far enough it's the low-hanging fruit of the combination in my opinion you know mm -hmm. so mm -hmm. and just one last question in terms of what might be another change that I don't think we have seen a humongous amount of changes is what uh, sits in the back of the ski, the fin, right? Which uh, a lot of listeners love to play with fins. I'm sure like they have their numbers. They try to play around with the uh, different numbers, different shapes of the fin, uh, different position. Mm -hmm. What are your thoughts on that? Because there's some people saying, well, we've sort of exhausted design, or which I think it's not the right way to frame it but like we've been doing a lot sure. of work in design of the actual ski but what sits in the back we haven't really experimented as much what do you think about that yeah i have a pretty controversial answer to that i'll say um i'm not as interested in the fin as most other uh high-end skiers or ski designers i think the fin's important don't get me wrong and i'm not saying at the elite levels moving your fin a couple thou isn't the difference I'm just saying that I think 
the ski you're riding has the biggest impact on the equation. Meaning if you take a ski that doesn't work very well, fundamentally in the ski design, there's no fin you're going to put on it. That's going to make it work really, very well. You know, you can make it a little better. Um, but if you take a ski that's designed properly, I've seen people run very different numbers or fin blade shapes and still have success. So I'm not saying, I think the emphasis on fin is a little overblown, you know? Now, that being said, I do think that they are very interrelated. Maybe like, because we're always kind of using the same fin shape, it's leading us to similar conclusions on the ski shaping and vice versa. Because we're building off this knowledge of ski shaping with a certain fin, it's leading us to continue to use that fin. So somebody might get way outside the box and find some radical ski that requires a radical fin. Um, I haven't had much luck with that. We always kind of gravitate doors back to that kind of standard HO shape in about a 90 thou thick stock. By the time you anodize, it gets a little under 90 thou. You know, we mess around with four or five holes. It seems to be what Mapple used. We know it's what Wade used. Bob likes it. Will likes it. It seems to be a theme, mm-hmm. whether that's right or wrong. And we've had better luck designing different skis and not necessarily working on different fins. But somebody, I hope, figures it out, and I'll be I'll be right there, ready. But we don't, we're not putting a ton into fin shaping right now. I know the Denali guys. I ski with Adam Cord a little bit. He skis on my lake at Hilltop. I know those guys are trying some radical fin shapes, and I applaud them. I hope they crack the code. But I haven't personally had much luck with radical fin shapes yet. Mm-hmm. So, mm-hmm. okay. Yeah. Oh, I was just yeah. curious because it's, I, I feel it's like the only part of the ski we didn't get to talk about. So, yeah. You know. Yeah. Yeah. Look, Dave, um, I think I'm, I've been treasuring having this chat with you. First of all, because we hadn't talked in a while. Um, yeah, I know. It's been a while. I mean, we are literally on the other sides of the world. Um, but uh, I always give a shot to my guests to, you know, say a few props, a bit of gratitude. So, you know, it's yeah. your chance. Oh, like thank people or whatever. Yeah. yeah. Well, I mean, I wouldn't be here without my mom and dad, like huge opportunity from them. It's unbelievable how much they helped. Um, Robert's for sure. Wade, you know, one of my best friends, like wouldn't have my opportunity at HO if it wasn't for him. Same, same with Chris Rossi. And then, you know, just like I said, I think I, praised LaPointe pretty well. Like HO wouldn't be where we at without Bob. Didn't speak about Will much, which is odd because usually when we talk water skis and HO, it's Will Asher, you know, but you know, same with Will, like when Wade was no longer the face of HO, Will really carried the brand on his back for a lot of years, you know, as the high profile athlete. And I really have learned all that we talked about. I learned with Will, him and I, and so that's super valuable. And, and just like I, I alluded to, like what he did on the weekend kind of in a way made it all worth it to see him run to a 43. I thought was unreal, you know? So, um, Marcus Brown's a huge impact and, uh, all the guys, John Travers, Benny, Jamie Bull, Allie Nicholson, Chris Parrish, our whole team, Mateo, yourself, Nick Adams. Like we really have a great crew and, They've keep, they keep me motivated to keep pushing and to do the ski design. And then all the team I work with at HO, Jeff Shaw, John Yan, Brett Perry, Dave Robinson, Matt Caldwell, 
Chris Terrell, that whole crew, which is the crew you don't see, who are really the guys putting the legwork in behind all these great products in the HO brand, whether it's skis or vests or tubes. Uh, so yeah, that's really huge. Thanks to them. And obviously my girlfriend, Brittany, um, has to put up with the water ski stuff day in and day out. So, um, yeah, just a big thank to, thank you to all those people. I'm sure I forgot so many, but I mean, those are the ones that just pop into my head right away. It's like, obviously my family, my water ski family, my work crew, the team who puts the hard work in and like, you know, my personal life and my great friends. Yeah. So. Yeah, really appreciate that. Yeah, no, of course. Well, uh, this is my chance again to thank you for being part of this. Uh, I, I honestly can't wait to put this out. Thank you, Dave. Yeah, I enjoyed it. Thank you, Mateo. Appreciate it. Thank you.